Hi, and welcome to Inclus This. I'm your host, Sarah Kerwin, and this is a movement for disability equity. Today, we're talking with Stephanie Keeney Parks, and we're talking about the joy despite the barriers. Stephanie is a doctoral student at the University of California, Los Angeles, in the Department of Anthropology, where she studies medical, psychological, and linguistic anthropology. She also holds a master's degree in medical anthropology from Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. Stephanie's research centers on the everyday lives of black parents who have children with autism. She is also interested in the process of diagnosing a black child with autism, as well as the healthcare disparities these families face. Stephanie is interested in centering the black parents' narrative and experience as the expert to decenter white ideologies on health, healthcare, disability, and black culture. Her research stems from her experience as a black woman, wife, and mother of two children. Stephanie's oldest child is diagnosed with autism. Good morning, Stephanie Keeney Parks, and welcome to Inclus This. Can you believe that we're here? I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I remember the first time we spoke was at the very, very beginning of my planning period for this podcast when it hadn't really been fully created and I still pretty much had no idea what I was doing. But I, I remember that we had a really great conversation that day with you and I and Dr. Molly Bloom. And a few things come to mind when I think about that first conversation. The main thing that comes to mind for me is this laundry list of systemic barriers facing children of color in this country that I basically read off to you, which was like, yes, obviously Stephanie already knows these things, but I'm very grateful that you were one of my very initial conversations because you were so gracious and you taught me so much and educated me on so much. And I I really appreciated that conversation that we had. Hey, right on. I'm glad it was helpful. It was. This list that I read off to you included medical diagnoses delays, lack of access to resources, negative experiences with safety officers in schools, healthcare, financial inequities, systemic racism, inflamed relations with police officers as adults. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Um, and what, what sticks out for me most is that you said, you know what, Sarah, despite all of that, I really want people to know that we still have joy that despite all those barriers, we still have joy, hence the name of this podcast episode. Oh, right on. That's great. I mean, we live in it all the time. It's part of the resistance, right? Yes, yes. And that relationship between joy and resistance, I love that. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the episode. But I think we should start at the very beginning of your experience with your son who is diagnosed with autism. That was something that, that we started our conversation with. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, like most folks don't really think about disability because we live in such an ableist and stigmatized society or an ableist and stigmatizing society until it's like near you, right? And my son um, having autism clearly changed my world um, for the absolute better. Um, but like 
most most people I struggled getting a diagnosis for him. I knew that he had autism. Um, he was four and not potty trained and not speaking. Um, having some pretty serious tantrums. Um, you know, he's inconsolable. Had had some like really typical what would be autism traits that would be diagnosable, right? You know, for us, I remember my husband had deployed to somewhere and it was Christmas and uh, I was just in tears because for me when um, Del would tantrum and I couldn't console my baby, right? Like I couldn't make him okay. I couldn't make him happy. I didn't know how to calm him down. Um, that was just, just awful. He wasn't okay, and that's just that's just not sustainable for me, or you know, for most parents. Um, I also couldn't get our pediatrician to diagnose him, and I couldn't get the school district to diagnose him. And the school district actually called me and was like, "We can't get him to get sit in a chair. We don't know what to do with this little kid, et cetera, et cetera." And he was in preschool and um, had some like global delay and speech delay type diagnoses, but not an autism diagnosis. And I just I just knew that was what I was looking at. And so I went to the base hospital where we were stationed. And I, um, when you go to the hospital, they, they give you a little sheet of paper and ask you if you will harm yourself or, you know, you need help in an immediate way. And I marked yes. And because I knew they'd take me immediately to a psychologist. And so I brought my son with me and I, I walked in to the psychologist and they said, what's wrong? You know, we got, you know, are you okay? And I said, I'm absolutely not okay. Can't get anybody to pay attention to the fact that my child has autism and I need you to listen to me. And that's kind of how our diagnostic process started. Um, and like, like a lot of folks, you know, um, when your kid's diagnosed with autism, they'll tell you things like, they just tell you so much silliness. Um, you know, I think a lot of parents because we live in such an ableist world, we don't quite understand what we're looking at. And it, when it comes to disability and you start from this framework of cure the kid, cure the kid, you know, I mean, like, where are the resources to cure this kid? And um, as you kind of move through the process of learning about a diagnosis and, the, and thinking about like what it means to take your child to therapy and what are you really trying to do with your child in therapy and how does this shape your relationship with your child? and their relationship with the larger world and those type of things. Um, you know, you just kind of, or I think you should maybe have kind of a switch in how you understand your child. Um, and so for, for our family, it went from, oh my God, it's an autism diagnosis, like this autism thing to just, you know, this, this human in front of us is beautifully and perfectly created in the exact way he is. And it, it's, um, you know, he's wonderful. He's great. Well, except for he's turning 16 and he smells bad sometimes. Autism didn't make my kid awful, right? Like, and I think that's important to like keep in the framework because I think I people apologize to me when they hear my kid has autism. And I, I actually ask, have you ever met him? If you met my son, you would never apologize for who he is. He's, he's great. <laughs> he's just a great human, you know? Oh, I love that. We actually have talked about that on the podcast in a, another episode. I can't remember which one about people's reactions when we talk about diagnoses and that it's usually, I'm so sad for you. And yeah, 
I was talking about how I just kind of sprinkle it in. It's part of my day to day. So I'll say it and move on. But people are stuck on that diagnosis and feeling sad and can't kind of move out of that space to join us in the rest of the conversation. And also like disability is not awful. Like that does not ruin my life. The, you know what I mean? Like it just he's lovely and wonderful as anybody else. You know what I mean? Like and it's it's a thing and it's a particular thing when when you're like couple it with the racialized experience of being black or raising a black child in the United States, raising a black disabled child in the United States, a black male disabled child. Right. Like all the intersections start to come into play. And that and that that's um, what makes disability difficult in my world is that I'm navigating ableism and racism in like one smush at times, right? Like um, not just this kid can't, we can't get him to sit in a chair. It's that they perceive him as violent and aggressive and scary. And he's just a four-year-old little dude that needs to probably like jump on the trampoline and get some sensory input and then get to sit down, you know? Yes. Um, it's just, it's really quite complicated. And, and when our doctors couldn't tell the difference between what was black culture and what was autism, right? So at times they would diagnose um, black language use as non-normative and thus autistic. Really? I didn't know that. That was awful. And that shows up in my data as, as a researcher that, that, because we we diagnose and think about what's the unmarked normative way of being as white, we don't just say that this is a white way of being. We just say that, oh, this is the dominant way of being in the world. And if you don't behave like this, then you have autism, right? Which is just this black kid behave in a way that looks normative to whiteness. It's not normative to blackness. It's normative to whiteness, right? Like, are you using language in a way that's normative to what white folks would consider to be the standard? And and that that is a particularly difficult problem to, like, kind of um, unravel, right? Because it's... it's um, it's kind of like if if any cultural deviation from what is the white hegemonic norm then becomes non-normative and thus diagnosable. And that's like the the crux of that particular problem in my world at least. And I also remember that just triggered my my memory when we first spoke you talked about the length of time that it took for his diagnosis. Yep. There's that. Yeah, and I felt like and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like my understanding walking away from that was that your son was diagnosed early for a black child, but late on a scale of like a white child. Yes. Um, my son was diagnosed about two months to three months before his fourth birthday. I think white kids get diagnosed around two years of age. So Dell was kind. Um, and and he's showing things like he was completely nonverbal, right? He's still not potty trained. He's definitely doing like, um, he's definitely stimming and um, you know having sensory input things go on that probably need to be addressed or supported. And, um, you know, 
he just showed so many like red flags that were dead ass obvious. And, and it's strange because we often like love to talk about how black people refuse to use like the diagnosis of autism. They refuse like mental health categories and this, that, and the other thing. But it's also true that clinicians refuse to diagnose black kids with autism. They have a real hard time using labels too. Um, and, and we kind of we have to like keep that in balance, right? As hard as it may be for some black folks to say autism or use that term or buy into like what is the DSM five category, is the same thing that is is similar in that clinicians refuse to use that category for black kids too at times, right? So it's it's a it's um this whole conflation of race and disability is just really difficult. Man, there's so much that's so layered within that. What I wanted to ask you about is oftentimes I hear stories about parents whose children are also in school and because their actions are seen as behavior issues as opposed to autism. And there's also research that shows that the officers that are safety officers within those school systems have a negative perception of children of color. So there, there are all of, all of these different uh, layers of oppression, right, that, that children of color are facing. One of the things that I want to touch back upon is what you talked about in the beginning about a cure. A cure, you want to cure the kid, you know, and it kind of reminds me of saying we want to eradicate this disease. And to me, that feels very much like you want to eradicate the people. What are your thoughts on that? I absolutely hate the idea of um, we must cure your child. I um, really bristle when people say things like that. you know, I'm at school at UCLA, which has like one of the like storied like um, psychology centers for autism. And I've, you know, been approached like, well, why aren't you using more of their services? Like they could do so much more for him. And really, um, my goal for my son isn't cure, right? Like I don't see anything wrong with him. I do see that like he's going to have to participate in a capitalist economy. So I'm going to have to make sure that he has a skill set to do that. But that doesn't mean I have to cure autism or make him less autistic, right? Like, um, and I find, I just find it like deeply frustrating that people can't just be with him as he's created and, and not think about like how to fix him when he's not looking at you like that. And you know, asking what's wrong with you, you know, just, it just, it just doesn't feel good or right. And, um, yeah, yeah. I just don't like it. Not, not one single little bit. And I've actually had students ask me about this, right? Like I gave a talk once and a student asked if you could cure his autism, you know, to keep him safe, would you do that? And I just, I just thought to myself, like, you know, if uh, cure his autism, keep him safe, like he's still black, right? Like 
he's still got the other intersection. So, you know, either way it goes, the kid's not safe. And no, I wouldn't like cure his autism. Like he's perfectly lovely. I would cure capitalist, heteronormative, patriarchal society that I'd cure. When I started working in the intellectual developmental disability community, it was very different for me because I really had been mostly in like physical disability, rehab hospital, uh, you know, National Wheelchair Basketball Association, very much physical disabilities. So I went into this space of intellectual and developmental disabilities, and I found that I didn't necessarily know how to interact with that with that community and i think that and i shared a story on one of our other episodes about my experience there was a a mother and uh, her adult child was a fit in the aisle of target and as opposed to me saying hey you got this or you know all moms go through this or whatever you know something supportive or even good morning or good afternoon i immediately went to oh i should give some space I thought about this on the way home from Target. I thought, man, did I did I make her feel worse? Because in my mind, I was trying to be respectful and give space. However, in her mind, it could have been a shun or, um, you know, a negative that, that I didn't engage. And so I talked with the CEO of the company. I talked with some of the parents. But I think with this community that that there's a fear around how do we interact appropriately. Um, what would you say, you know, if that if I had come to you with that and said, hey, Stephanie, here's what, here's how I reacted, what would you advise or what insights would you have? You know, I, I um, have run into this quite a bit and I've had several different reactions, you know, as a parent whose kid did tantrum in public a lot. And being shunned for that or being told, you know, you're not a good parent or what's wrong with your child and this kind of thing. Um, And I've also been, you know, on the other end where I'm at Target and I see, you know, a parent whose kid is melting down in the middle of the aisle and they look like, you know, they're really stressed. And, you know, for me, it's it can be a give space. It can also be a, hey, um, a quick I'm an autism parent too, or I, I'm a disabled person. Can I grab your purse and help you in any way? Like, can I, can I, you know, help you get the kid out to the cars? You know, do you need help or are you all right? Um, and that's okay. That's okay to ask. Well, the thing is like, we're humans, right? Like you can run into a human like me who will say, yes, thank you. I appreciate it. Could you hold on to my purse while I hang on to him so he doesn't hit his head? Right. Like, or you could run into a parent who's like, you know, fuck off, (laughs) you know, because humans react differently. The other thing that I found maybe useful is just like standing. If I feel like the parent is okay, but still like having to attend to the situation, I may stand close and just like marshal off the other watchers of the situation you know like people who are like oh my god look at that terrible child and their parent what's wrong with these humans you know and you can just tell them you know you need to take your mess somewhere else you know or just like 
making sure that security doesn't come up and do something ridiculous to them. Oh, gosh, that's such a good point. Especially if it's a black family. Can you just be there to bear witness? Because when you as a white woman step in and say, hey, y'all need to leave this family alone. She's got this. It's real different, right? Like you can use your privilege in a way that I don't have that option. Um, Yep. Yep. You know, but also each individual human that you come into contact with is going to have different needs. So there's no like right or wrong way to do this. And you're going to do it right for some and you're going to just screw it up for others. And you just have to be willing to like be humble enough to know when somebody tells you, hey, you didn't approach me in a way that I felt was respectful. Just say, damn, I'm sorry. And take 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 the loss, you know. Don't make them feel bad for not wanting your help. You know, um, yeah, just take the loss. And maybe the next family that will work for it, but this particular one, it just didn't fit. And that's okay. But there's like, literally, I can't give you like one specific way to interact with a family that would work across the board. Well, and I think that's the most important point to make is that what I really want our listeners to take away is that it's the conversations, right? It's the engaging it's the letting the person, the letting the person, the the disabled person or or the family member that's caring for that person be the lead in the situation. So I think what you're stating about each person is going to react differently to that is the most important takeaway for our listeners. Because one thing, one thing that's happening is that we move away from having a conversation when that fear is wedged between us of how do we speak, what are the right words, et cetera, et cetera. But if the person, the disabled person or that person's family member that's caring for them is there, they lead the way. We support. Yeah. They lead the way. So I really like how you said, hey, is there something that I can help you with? What a gentle approach. Hey, you know what? I have a disability too. You can't even see it. And you know what? I get it where you're at. Can I help you? Something along those lines of support. I love that how you said that. Well, quiet like allyship. If I know that I'm safe, maybe I can let you help too, right? If it's a safe space, if it's been uh, coming from a place of empathy, I think. Right. Or solidarity. And like, this is somebody who knows what I'm going through. So they're not judging me. They're here to help. That's terribly important. And I think a lot of us, when our kids tantrum in public or, you know, have meltdowns and struggle in public spaces, um, we feel so judged and so traumatized in the moment. And we're also scared that our kids aren't okay. Um, That it's real hard to like keep all things in perspective in that moment, you know? Absolutely. I, I can't imagine that. Um, and I, I really still like how you said it. Is there something, you know, make that shared connection, that solidarity, you know, lay that groundwork and then a gentle ask. I really like that. It could also terribly not work that day. So, <laughs> well, and that's going to happen. I mean, there's some days where I want to talk about, you know, my MS and there's some days where I'm like, oh my God, if I have to explain to anyone else why I look so good today, but I feel like shit, I'm going to lose my gourd. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Going back to educating uh, and being comfortable having those conversations, 
I remember when we were kind of brainstorming a title for this episode, and I said, my experiences as a Black mother with autism. I remember you specifically saying to me, Sarah, I need to address that because I'm more than just a Black mother. I'm a scholar. I'm getting my PhD at UCLA. I'm a mother. I'm a woman. I'm Black. There's all of these different parts of me. And I remember you saying that to me, and I was like, no shit. It goes back to the shared experience there is I can understand that because I don't want people to see just Sarah disabled or disabled Sarah, right? It's just one of the many pieces that make you up, right? Yes. And we created that safe space. Yeah, yeah. We had that safe space for you to say to me, hey, Sarah, like, didn't love that. I have to tell people that really very quite often, though. Even other, like, academics who will ask me to come and give an academic talk, but say, can you tell us about what your life is like as a Black mom? We could really learn from that. And I have to ask them, well... Would you ask any other academic to tell you about their personal life or would you ask them to tell you about their research, right? Like how we're, you know, we're in an academic space and still in those spaces, I get read as just mom for them to consume and rather than like colleague and equitable. um, That's kind of where my frustration where that with that comes from, right? I've done all the work they've done, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Yeah, and I think that there needs to be a recognition of that. And, you know, even Molly and I had a conversation about that before we went into the first episode because she is a doctor. You know, she is an expert in this area. And so, you know, I wanted to be clear that, and I think I I prefaced it with, I'll be calling her Molly because I'm getting still getting used to Dr. Bloom, but we also have a friendship, but I wanted people to be well aware that She's a doctor. She's earned that degree. So same thing here that you're earning your doctorate degree. You will be a doctor. And so there needs to be a certain amount of respect for that work. Or just space for the fact that I, too, like Molly, am, well, I'm not the expert yet, but I'm becoming an expert in this particular field, right? And and I'm nearly there. Um, and it also is, is uh, kind of space dependent, right? Like, in an academic department where you go to give a lecture, it's inappropriate to ask somebody to just tell you their life story so you can consume that and learn from it, right? Um, but on a podcast, we're talking like, you know, as friends and mom, you know, and we're really actually just talking about my mom experience, and then that's a different thing. You know, it just it's also real context specific, I think. So, you know, it's, it's a hard line to walk that one. And it's important for people to understand when we do that, what we're implying. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's the whole, you know, there's a reason I went to go get a PhD and a lot of it surrounds the fact that I could never be taken seriously as a black mom. I was always just a research subject, something that, um, you know, non-black clinicians in particular could just you know, dismiss or use as a research topic. Oh, that's what the Black experience is like. You know, come tell us about that so we can learn. And I mean, like, okay, but also I'm not like a research lab rat. There's my kid. Very true. So it's, 
it's complicated. That's also complicated. It's never easy. Nothing's easy, <laughs> you know? How do we recognize when we're asking too much of someone where we should actually be filling in that work ourselves? And I had a guest. He said, if people want to find out information about this, don't expect us to take our time and our energy to educate you. There is enough data and research and resources available in this year of 2021 that you can readily access yourself. It's out there for you, you know, and that's true. Yes. Like, you know, for black folks, we're like, it's been 400 years. We've been telling you all the same shit for 400 years. So at some point we have to stop believing that you don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's like a willful refusal to know at this point. At this point. Yes. There's some really, um, like how white people can advocate for Black Lives Matter movement, or there's um, some resources about, you know, there's other white folks who have spent the time to learn about these topics who teach other white folks about them so that Black people don't have to. Inclusion is bullshit. I rock back and forth between it um, all the time, right? Like, because I have a little, I have a son and it's always in the midst of like the disability conversation. Do you want inclusive education where he goes to school with neurotypical kids, right? But he goes to school with neurotypical kids and supposedly the data is better and shows that he'll have better lifetime outcomes. Um, But also he's demanded to like fully assimilate, assimilate into white heteronormative ways. And then you know, they also infantilize him. And he's also still at the back of the room with the para, you know, doing different work and, you know, the special kid things. And it still feels odd and uninclusive, you know? And I struggle with that. Like maybe, you know, why can't he be with other disabled folks and enjoy himself and people who think and, and, you know, feel similar to him about the world? You know, why is that a problem? And it, you know, it, Yeah. Inclusion is hard. That goes back to a very interesting question that I always have. When we look at group settings and how we want individuals within the intellectual and developmental disability community to be integrated into society, into the community, um, no more group home settings. I personally have talked with individuals who feel like, like you're just saying, why wouldn't it be okay for them to be around people who are, have shared experiences and similar experiences as them? And so when we tear apart this group home setting and we put everyone into these homes with someone who's caring for them, but maybe not a family member, maybe not someone that they know, How is that better than being around a community of people who have your shared experiences? You and I do the same thing. You go to wheelchair basketball, right? I go to, um, I have a black graduate study group and writing group that I go to. You know, we do grouped activities all the time to get access to the comfort that that brings. Yes. And I don't think that that should be shunned or problematic that my son wants to be with other disabled individuals because they have a shared life experience. And, 
you know, I think you should enjoy and partake. And I think that the poor lifetime outcomes aren't because he's with other disabled people. Right. The poor lifetime outcomes are because we treat that group of disabled people like trash. Exactly. Yeah, it's not it's not because he's with other disabled kids. They're fabulous. Those kids in that classroom are a dream, right? Like they're great kids. But I also feel like if he wants to go hang out with neurotypical kids and gen ed classes, do you, kid? You know, like have the option and the opportunity to be where you want to be and do the things that make you happy and comfortable. Um yeah, have the options. That's interesting because does that go back to the IDEA? I don't know. That's a dumpster fire. So <laughs> such a dumpster fire. You know, it's like the only like true bipartisan effort of the United States government. We refuse to fund this through every administration since its inception. And we refuse to like fully fund it continuously. And everybody votes in favor of that. <laughs> what in the hell? What in the actual hell? Not that it's a good document anyways, but just. Yeah, what in the actual hell? It's not even good as it is, but you haven't even fully implemented or funded it, period. So you can get along when it comes to. The marginalization of disabled Americans, yes. Yes. The refusal to pay them a full working wage, living wage, yeah. Yes. That is the tie that binds. Tie that binds, yeah. It's really awful. It's legitimately awful. It's legitimately awful. It's it's really shameful. But also, they don't really give a damn. You know, this is another thing where we have, what, 50-some years of receipts? It's more than that. Yeah. It's been a minute. It has been. <laughs> and if you think about it, there there has been more attacking of the ADA than there has been of building it out. Why would they ever build it out? They don't perceive you as being full citizens because you cannot participate in capitalist societies in ways that make them happy. But that's only, well, in ways that make them happy. You know, I was talking with a former colleague of mine the other day, and she has had multiple TIA strokes, like the mini strokes, and she's much more susceptible to COVID-19, yet her employer is making her continue to go into the office because they don't want to give her like every other Friday off. Like, it's very interesting when you say we don't work into their program because they can't they can't figure it out it's just that you can't conform to the very specific norms right like or you won't put your body in jeopardy because you shouldn't have to i didn't realize like how salient this was until i started to notice like everything about my son's life right from preschool on is about what are you going to be when you grow up and how do we make you fit that, you know, kind of like the white heteronormative middle-class norms. Like, how do we make you a white middle-class member? Do you know what I mean? Like, everything's about that. It's not about Dell's health care. It's not about his health and well-being. It's not about his um, happiness. It's not about, it's always about how do we get him to assimilate into a job? And even his most recent IEP, that was like the first thing they said. They were like, oh my God, he has all these um, skills that we can put him in a job. And I'm just thinking like, yes, you know, we have to work in this country. That's what it is, right? But um, also, he's so much more than like worth something because you think you can, the skills are, you know, for a job. 
advocates are talking about employment of people with disabilities and the ADA and reasonable accommodations. And what what we're not talking about is everything that goes into employment, the person, the transportation, the access to the application. How inclusive is your city? Are there people with disabilities that look like you? Because otherwise, some people don't want to go work there if they don't see other people like them represented. I don't want to teach everybody about disability. I really don't. And that's literally like the space you get put into or, you know, I don't want Dell like sorting silverware, you know, or, you know, when when his love is playing the trombone, you know, I just don't want like. I want whatever he does with his life to be something that's salient and important and like makes him happy. I want to go back to our original conversation opener here, which was about the title for this episode, which is Despite the Barriers, There's Joy. And I feel like we'd be extremely remiss if we didn't talk about black joy and what that means. And you're going to laugh at me. You're going to laugh at me. I actually had no idea what this term meant until I was watching Married at First Sight. And one of the husbands had a t-shirt on that said Black Boy Joy. So for, for anyone who knows me, you know, I immediately went and researched that, right? I was like, okay, I got to find out what this means. Yeah. So in her article for Vogue titled What Black Joy Means and Why It's More Important Than Ever, writer Shantae Joseph writes, joy and resistance are one and the same. To resist the omnipresent, intrusive, and pervasive nature of white supremacy, we must allow ourselves to be rebelliously joyous. Where society has told us to be quiet and that we're too loud and too different, it is an act of resistance to revel in the joy that they have spent much of history trying to take away from us. I get chills, actually, when I read that. Um, It's powerful. What does black joy mean for you, for your son who's diagnosed with autism, for your entire family? During the pandemic, it's been really hard to find that black joy. Um, You know, when you say white supremacy, you have to, like, also include the ableism, right? Because Dell's black boy joy looks different than a neurotypical child's black boy joy, right? For me, like, yes, I agree with what she's saying, but also, like, it's more than white supremacy. And I would argue that white supremacy is predicated on ableism. They need it. It, it needs it to breathe, right? Like, that's part of what creates the fire. Um, but So disgusting. Yeah, that's historically, for me, that's, like, historically a piece of how white supremacy came to be and, and what maintains it. It's real useful for them, the ableism shit. So, um, but, again, like, for us, it's like Dell playing his trombone. He has a bright green trombone and he walks through the house playing his trombone. Or, you know, sometimes he loves Buddy the Elf and he dresses up in a Buddy the Elf costume and just like literally enjoys himself. Um, Dell and I would have the best time because Elf is my favorite movie. And when I was actually, when I was writing this little bit of the script for today, I was saying your name and I was like, Stephanie Keeney Parks. And I kept thinking of Elf 
when he would be like, Francisco. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. Anyway, go on. Look, Dell loves himself somebody. That's too funny. Um, he loves water slides, right? Like, and you've never seen a human love water slides. We had to drive out to Palmdale and drive him past the water slide park that he's been looking up, right? Because he just loves those particular water slides. So we drove him out there. You know, Joy, because we're constantly demanded to talk about trauma. Like, I think a lot of society expects Black people to pimp their trauma. Tell me about your traumatic Black experience so you can get access to said scholarship. Tell me about your traumatic Black experience so we can learn from it. Tell me about your traumatic Black experience. Oh, that that's not traumatic enough, so now I don't believe you. So now you don't get access to the justice in which you deserve, right? I call it pimping your trauma. Like, we are told to pimp our trauma all the time. I, I don't know if that's my term or somebody else's. So um, it is true. And it's really, it's an awful space to be in. And so to be joyful when people want to like frame you as it's terrifying, it's terrifying. Yeah, we face a lot of terrifying shit. But also our people are funny and glorious and beautiful and, you know, curly haired and like delicious food cooking and just funny. And so, so many artists, so many athletes, so many possibilities, right? Like it's glorious being black, even with everything we face, we're so blessed to be black. And we feel, we literally feel that way, like constantly. So blessed to be black. We're fine with us. <laughs> I think that's what the joy should tell you is we are just fine with us. We love us some us. But really, it's the other folks that Toni Morrison says it best. Like, white folks got one hell of a problem. And that's the truth, because, like, black folks, we're going to be joyful no matter how ridiculous y'all get. So that's that's really important, um, especially to those studying blackness and, like, health disparities. It doesn't mean that those things don't exist. It just means that we thrive in spite of. We love and find joy and do things that are salient to us in spite of. So with COVID-19, so the data specifically shows that communities of color are being impacted at a much higher level. You hear a lot with this COVID-19 where folks are on TV talking about black folks have medical mistrust of the vaccine, which is true. We don't trust y'all for shit and we shouldn't. Right. I mean, historically, where has that trust been built? Let's talk about what work that statement does, right? When you say things like black folks have medical mistrust, therefore they're not getting vaccinated. But then you show something that says, well, well, white people are getting vaccinated at four times the rate. And then white folks go around thinking, well, damn, it's because black folks don't have trust in the medical system instead of, oh, I wonder, did we give them the same resources we gave white folks? Did we, um, did white folks infiltrate South Central LA? And Yeah, they did. Yeah, girl. Yes. If you would not send your kid to school in that neighborhood, you are not be getting yourself vaccinated there. Yes. How disgraceful. Right. And this is part of the work that that particular trope does, right? Like, is frame us as incapable and silly and problematic and we don't understand medicine and this type of mess. When in actuality, it's a nice, easy cover-up for the fact that you just colonized the Black neighborhood again and took the vaccines and Black people couldn't get damn access. And you didn't give us enough to begin with. And also, where is why is nobody questioning, like, you know, Trump supporters didn't wear masks. Do you really think they're going to put a vaccine in their arm? 
What about the anti-vaxxer crew? That is actually white, middle-class, college-educated folks. So I just, you know what I mean? Like, we have to be real careful when we're like, the Black community doesn't do X. I mean, we might could not, some of us. But sure as shit, the white folks ain't doing it, so... When I read that article, I was like, oh, my God, you got to be you've got to be kidding me. I want to learn more because I'm getting inundated with different ideas and thoughts. And, you know, for me, coming on and having these conversations is just that I'm not saying that these thoughts are these ideas are uh, set in stone, that this is the way and, and this is how we think about it. I'm just introducing voices to get new ideas into the space that starts conversations. No, that's real. And I think um, something good to keep in mind in the same way that like we don't demand that white people agree on something to make it so for their cultural way of being. I think it's Angela Davis who said, you know, part of being free for black people is being free to be black in whatever ways or salient to understand the world differently from the next black person. And so just, just like, you know, the reminder that like disability in the same way, like all these different various ways to think about it, you know, just different entrance points and the freedom to like experience it in whatever way is necessary for you or feels good to you or, you know, I try to keep that in mind because working with families, you will find a diversity of opinion about disability. <laughs> the point is to bring different thoughts to the table because if disability all come together, we're so powerful in our voice. But when we stay siloed and don't collaborate, I feel we will not get momentum or get forward progress on the disability rights movement. You know, the, the other thing is that we're, we're looking at it from such a white perspective. And so we need people with different ideas, different voices. And let's have the conversation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you have any piece of advice, like a change piece? Like, what can I do in my life to be more uh, to understand? I mean, you and I talked about a lot of layers of intersectionality. One of the most necessary things white folks can do is identify when they're, when they're marking and unmarking their whiteness, right? Whether it's good or bad, right? That, that an autism diagnosis is constructed in a white historical context, right? That, that these tests are using white norms as the kind of unmarked norm for how disabled children should be diagnosed. Um, if, if folks could come away with the fact that culture impedes every thing and be able to talk about that without it being like offensive, it's just factual, that would be really useful. Because a lot of what keeps racism going is like this ability to say, oh, whiteness doesn't exist, or that's not a thing, or like biomedicine and science are without race. And that's like, it's not true. And so... Um, Marking it and, and leaving that just as a mark, not not like, oh, this is a bad thing because white folks are doing it or, you know, autism is a bad category because it comes from this particular history. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that's how it's constructed and we have to be cognizant of it to be able to make headway for how race and disability kind of function. Appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And once again, to our listeners, thank you for spending your time with us and joining the Inclus This Conversation and movement. 
Incluse This is brought to you by iLevel Communications, LLC. iLevel is a California-based woman and disability-owned small business committed to having critical conversations at iLevel that are necessary to move disability to the forefront of the greater diversity conversation. If you'd like to learn more about the work we're doing, please visit the website at www.ilevel.works. You can also email me directly with any podcast episode ideas or questions and comments at sarah at ilevel.works. Remember to put your disability lens on when you look at the world and tune in next week for another stimulating conversation on Incluse This, the podcast that's really a movement. Take care and be well. Don't lose your cool.